welcome to the cold dive. I'm Lucas, aka Chrono Kirby, and this is the place for musings on cryptography, technology, and additive versus multiplicative notation for groups. Today I'd like to continue sort of the discussion on threshold signatures by doing a bit of a deep dive on threshold ECDSA in particular, which is, I guess, I guess you could say it's the most necessary threshold signature scheme. It's, it's certainly the one that's received a lot of attention, a lot of different approaches because of a combination of two factors. One is that it's used in a lot of cryptocurrencies, or at least, you know, weighted by popularity, it's used in a lot. So it's used in Bitcoin and Ethereum in particular, the signature itself. And so developing threshold signature schemes is sort of interesting because, well, there's a lot of money that people want to sort of hold under custody and people want to use threshold signatures for custody. So it's natural to want to have threshold protocols for ECDSA. And another factor, which I guess led to a lot of research on the topic, is that it's not really trivial to do threshold signatures for ECDSA. So even just getting, you know, the basics of a protocol right can be difficult. With other research, it's sort of more focused on like getting more advanced properties for your signatures. So there's sort of the notion of identifiable boards, which I talked about in this podcast, I believe before. Uh, but you also have like some other advanced notions like public verifiability of the sort of execution of the protocol and stuff like that. And that kind of extra notion on top of your threshold signature scheme is sort of something that I guess sort of got developed because you, in some sense, you ran out of stuff to do. Like, it, or that, that, that makes it sound like a bad thing. But I guess another way to phrase it is that if you're so focused on just getting the basics right, you can't really spend too much time like developing more advanced properties you might want. So anyway, that's a long-winded way to say that because ECDSA is sort of hard and also very needed, there's been a lot of research into developing threshold signatures for it. And I guess, you know, the, the overview for what, what, what I want to talk about today is sort of, first of all, what ECDSA is maybe even explain a bit of the math, which is sort of necessary to understand why it's hard and why so much work has gone into thresholdizing it. And then from there, I guess we'll talk about like the big two approaches towards making the hard parts of threshold ECDSA work. And then a lot of nitty gritty details on how those end up working out in practice. And maybe even some little details about what I'm working on now with regards to threshold ECDSA. So first, I guess we're going to, or I'm going to try and explain uh, the formula behind ECDSA. And this is probably going to be uh, a bit of a technical barrier in the episode, but I'll try and I'll try and do my best to make uh, the explanation easy to follow, even in this format. So first of all, uh, what are the components of ECDSA as a signature scheme? Well, the, the idea is that you have a secret key and a public key, 
and you use the secret key for signing and you use the public key for verifying signatures. So the two sort of, I guess it's sort of three algorithms. One is for generating a key pair, which is a very simple algorithm. Uh, one is for signing and then the other one is for verifying signatures. So when you sign, you take in a message, you sort of immediately hash it and then you do some stuff and you get a signature. And then to verify, well, you need to know who signed the message. So that affects how you're gonna verify the signature. So you have their public key and then you have the message and the signature. And using those three components, you can verify that the person who owns this public key actually did sign this message and produce that signature. And to understand why ECDSA is hard, you sort of need to understand how these things work internally. So ECDSA, I really should say DSA because the EC and ECDSA stands for elliptic curve and the DSA stands for digital signature algorithm. And really everything I say in this episode probably applies to DSA, which is just sort of, D it's sort of complicated, but basically like DSA was just ECDSA before the, the elliptic curve stuff. So it was DSA over finite field groups, which is what kind of groups we were using before. But if you think about it sort of, DSA just sort of works for any group. So ECDSA is technically DSA, just with elliptic curves. And you really don't need to know much about elliptic curves for like this stuff. All you need to know is that like you have a group. And I guess I could do a whole episode about why groups are really cool in cryptography, but ultimately it's it's actually pretty simple if I dare say that. Um, so there's sort of, there's two sort of little objects you work with. One is scalars which are sort of numbers. And then you have the group, which consists of sort of points. And you can think these as, as just like big blobs that basically like, essentially they're like sort of random strings. They're not random strings, but like that's essentially the way to think about it because cryptographically speaking, there's not much structure you can sort of extract out. And if you can, that's bad. It's not a great group. You want a group that looks basically like, like completely random strings. And so, in your group, you basically can do like two things. You can add two blobs or points together and you get another blob. And you can also negate a blob or subtract two blobs, which is sort of the same as just adding, you know, one blob plus the negation of the other. And then you also have this special, you know, zero blob, which is such that if you add it to another element, it gives back that same element. So we call this one the identity point. But really all you need to know is that in the group, you can just add these blobs together. This is a useful operation. And one extra useful operation is that if you add a blob to itself like n times, we call that scalar multiplication. And we write like n times b for the blob. So if I do blob plus, let's just say b instead of blob. So if I do b plus b plus b, that's three times. So I could write that as three times b. Right, and it turns out that uh, in, in the groups you use, if you add any point, any blob, I'm going to start saying point instead of blob, you know, gradually. If you add any point to itself enough times, eventually you'll uh, you'll get the identity point. And also, one one thing to note is that is that you can sort of more efficiently do this than just like adding in times. 
So if I want to add like say four times, I could do you know b plus b plus b plus b. That's four. But I could also I could also say I do b plus b. That gives me two b. Then I do two b plus two b. So that's only two additions instead of four. And if I want to do it eight, well, using four b, I just add four b to itself again, and that gives me eight. And so you can sort of use this idea to only if I have sort of an n bit number that I want to act on a, a point with. So I want to do that number that point n times itself, then I only need sort of a, a, I basically only need to do one operation per bit of the number I'm scaling this point by. That's very important, actually. Because otherwise, like, a lot of this, you know, math wouldn't work out. So wouldn't be able to compute this stuff. So anyhow, you take any point, it has what's called an order, which is how many times you need to add it to itself to get the identity point. And because this group, like, has a finite size, you know that eventually, like, it can't like keep going on forever because eventually you just run out of like points. Like if it, every time you add it uh, to itself, or like if you every time you add it to this like state, you get a new point. Like eventually you're gonna have to you're gonna get to the same point again because you're gonna just run out of elements because it's not an infinite size group. And so this number of elements you have is called the order. And it turns out that like usually the groups you use are such that every element has the same order. Uh, because you choose an order which is a prime number. And this is nice for various reasons. And one reason that it's nice is that, sort of, if I take n times a point in the group, right? Uh, like, if I happen to sort of go past the order, then it sort of doesn't matter how many times I did that. So I guess, let's say the order is like 3. So if I add something to itself 4 times, I can write that as 3 plus 1. And so adding it to itself three times just gives me nothing, the identity point. And so then sort of I can just ignore that, that part of it and just do the 1. So whenever you have the order, you can take any sort of value n that you're trying to sort of multiply the point with and just say, OK, well, instead, I'm just going to take n modulo the order. I'm going to cut off how many multiples of the order I can cut off just get whatever remains and I'll use that. And so that means that sort of you don't need to care about arbitrary like integer scalars, you just need to care about scalars module modulo the order of the group. And so we call this sort of the field of scalars because the order is prime. So there's a lot of math, but essentially you have these scalars, you can add and multiply them. And it's sort of like adding and multiplying like rational numbers or like whatever you know field you want, except that it sort of wraps around at Q. And this makes it so that each element besides zero, you can, well, basically you can divide by elements in this field, you can multiply them, and you can add and subtract them, etc. So it's a nice, you know, well-behaved, you know, number stuff. And then I can translate from a number into the group by multiplying by a point. So if I have like a number three, that's in my field, it's big enough. And I can go from three to a point in the group by doing three times some point. And usually you fix a specific point and say this is the generator of the group. And if you want to go from scalars to the group, you multiply by this specific point. And it's convenient to just fix one for operations. And so then that was a, a long detour to get us to ECDSA. So I guess we can start with that now. So the basics is you have your key generation, right? So what you're gonna do. Oh, also, I guess I guess before. Well, I guess might as well just talk about key generation, then why it's that way. So 
when you have a key generation algorithm, you have a public key and you have a secret key, right? And it should be difficult to go from the public key to the secret key, because if you remember how these are used, we use the secret key to sign and the public key to verify. So we want anybody to be able to verify signatures, but if you could go from the public key to the secret key, well, then you could start forging signatures, right? And that's just no good. <laughs> so it needs to be hard to go from the public key to the secret key. So we need to somehow use some kind of hard assumption about the group. And so the assumption we're gonna use is that if I take a scalar and then I multiply the generator by that scalar, so I do, you know, G plus G blah, 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 blah N times, where N is my scalar, then it's sort of hard to go in the other direction. So if I just give you a point, it's like hard to figure out how many times I had to add G to get to that point. And if we go back to like the very first analogy I made, which is that you can sort of think of the points in the group as, as just like random blobs, you can add them together, but you sort of don't really know what's gonna happen. Like you add these two points together, you get another like string and you're like, okay, sure. I got that out of the black box algorithm I'm running, but I don't know, it's like hard to predict uh, where it's gonna end up. Sometimes people make an analogy of like billiard ball, balls where like you're shooting this ball around and you, it's sort of hard to predict where it's gonna bounce after like N bounces. And so the point is that with, if it's hard to go from scalars to group elements, well, rather, it's hard to go from group elements back to scalars. One idea for our key setup is that our secret key will be a scalar, and then let's say X, and our public key will be a big point. So a point in the group. So X times the generator, which I'll call Y. Uh, usually, I'll, if, if this were written, I'd write small X and big X, but I, I don't feel like saying small and big uh, a thousand times in the rest of this episode, so I'm just going to say X and Y. Uh, so anyhow, X, the scalar, is your private key. Y, the point, is your public key. And going from X to Y is easy. Just multiply by G, and you can do that quickly, relatively speaking. But going from Y to X is very hard, or at least believed to be hard. See the episode on uh, cryptographic assumptions for why I say believed to be. So, that's your setup. But how do we use these to sign? So, one sort of key property that you use for any sort of like scheme involving groups is that you exploit the structure of the group. So, one neat thing with multiplication is if I do like uh, three times a point plus four times a point, well, that's the same as like seven times a point because it's just three times a point is just, you know, the point added to itself three times, P plus P plus P, and four is P plus P plus P plus P, four times. And so if I just add these two together, I get P added to itself seven times. So you have this neat property looking at the sort of map perspective. I take a scalar A and I move it to the points and I take a scalar B and I move it to the points. Whether I add them before moving or after I get the same result. So if I do A times G plus B times G or any point, then that's the same as A plus B first times G. And this is a very sort of useful property because you can sort of use it to sort of verify equations sort of behind the exponent, as you say. So if I have some sort of some kind of property which needs to hold among some scalars, but I don't want to reveal them, I can sort of move them into the group and then those becomes public values that I can reveal 
and I can check whatever equation I want to check there. That's sort of the utility of the cryptographic group, is that you can move equation checking into the public sort of group and then do stuff there. And so that gives you a lot of flexibility when breaking schemes. So how do you sign with ECDSA? So if I were explaining Schnorr signatures, this would be a lot easier. But I'm explaining ECDSA, and I think it's just easier if I just go straight into it. So the the sort of I wonder what, what the best angle is here to explain it. So let's let's sort of gradually build this up. So the simplest way to prove that you know the secret key is to just show it to someone. And they could check that it's actually the right secret key, because if you have your x and y equals x times g, well what I do is if you give me your you know claimed x, maybe x prime, I can do x prime times g and I check if that's y. And so that's you know enough to convince me that, well, you know something, you know the sort of the image of y. <laughs> So that, but the issue with that is that like it only works once, because you know once I do it, well then now you know the secret too, so then you can convince somebody else you know the secret, and that's not great. And also for like a message or a signature rather, we want it to be tied to the specific usage of a message, right? So we need to somehow incorporate the message in there too. So I guess one sort of naive way of doing this is I say okay. I'm going to hash the message and get a scalar. It's easy to, it's easy to do that. Uh, because, well, I guess I might as well explain it. So basically, like, if I hash, I can just hash to get, like, a big number, and then I reduce that number modulo the order of the field. And if that number is sort of big enough, then there's no bias. You could also, like, just generate numbers until, like, it happens to be less than the order, and that'll also give you no bias. Because if you just take a number and sort of chop off a few bits, that might give you... A lot of bias, but if you chop off a lot of bits when you do this reduction, it's okay. Anyhow, I hash the message to get a scalar, and let's just say like the message is a scalar. This is simpler to explain for the rest of the <laughs> the episode. Like I take my message and I add it to the secret, and then what I can do is like, okay, I I if I'm verifying, I take the message, I hash it, get a scalar m, I do m times g. Or rather, I take your, I do m times g, I add it to the public key, and then that, you know, public value should be equal to the signature you gave me times g. Because if I have m plus x times g, this unravels to give m times g plus x times g, so it should equal the public key, which is on the right, and the message times g, which is on the left. And so I can sort of verify that you sort of did your addition correctly. Once again, this is still not great because it like reveals your public key. So the simplest idea to fix this is saying, okay, you know, what's a good way to to hide stuff? Uh, what's a good way to hi hide things here? Well, let's just multiply everything by a random, you know, factor. It's usually called a nonce, but it's 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 very sort of misleading to call it a nonce because it has to like remain secret. So what I do is I take a random k. Instead of doing m plus x, I do k times m plus x. And so now, if you don't know k, well, this looks just completely random to you. It's just, you have no idea what, what it is. Uh, so great, now I've, I've hidden this, this thingy. And it has both the message, so it's sort of binding to the message in some sense, and it has my secrets, so it's sort of like verifying that it's me signing. 
Uh, the issue is that, like, since this random K, uh, you can't, like, do anything. <laughs> you have no way to verify it. It just looks completely random. Okay. So, I have some secret that I want you to be able to use somehow, which is K, but I don't want to give it to you. Well, in a group, whenever, you, whenever you're in this situation where you have something secret, and I want to, like, have someone use it without telling them it, well, you just go, you just multiply it by the generator, and then you hope it works. You figure out how to make it work. So, like, one idea is you do k times g. That's not, like, super great. Instead, what you do is you do 1 over k times g. And the sort of idea that we're sort of getting towards is that, well, if I have 1 over k times g, and then I have k times something else as, like, a scalar, well, then, if I take this scalar, which is k times something, and I multiply it by that point you gave me, well, what happens is that this sort of all moves in front of the point, so I have something something complicated times g, and the something complicated is 1 over k, which is what you, you started the point with, and then k times something, which is what I contributed to. And the k and the 1 over k cancel each other out, so I get 1, so I'm just left with the something else in the k times something else. So then I have something else times g, and then I can sort of check the properties I had before. So if I have like the m plus x thing, this works out. So to sort of recap where we are uh, so far, because we don't have any visual aids, uh, the idea is we take, we start with x, we add an m to bind to the message, then we multiply by k to sort of hide it. So we have k times m plus x, or k times m plus k times x if you sort of unravel the multiplication. And the problem is that you can't verify this directly because you need to, because you don't know what k is. So you also send 1 over k times g to the verifier, or rather you include this as part of your signature. So then I have 1 over k times g on the left, and then k times m plus x. So then let's say that this thing on, on the right is s. So then I do s times 1 over k times g. The k cancels out the 1 over k, and I'm left with m times g plus x times g. And then I can do, oh, this, is, this should be m times g plus the public key x, which you gave me. And then that sort of verifies the signature. There's sort of one missing thing, which is that uh, right now, like, there's sort of nothing binding the choice of, like, like, this works if you actually sent me 1 over k times g, but I have no way of knowing that you actually sort of did that. And so the issue is, like, what I'm checking is that, you know, some point S. So, like, what you need somehow is you need to sort of include this first thing inside of the signature somehow to prevent, like, choosing it after choosing the signature or the sort of right part of the signature. And so the way you do this is you... I'm, I'm raising my two fingers and making square quotes. Scare quotes. You hash it. You hash 1 over k times g, which I guess I'll call the nonce commitment, to get a value r, r, and you include r in the signature. So instead of doing m plus x, you do m plus r times x. And so, recapping everything, you generate a k randomly, you do 1 over k times g, that gives you a big r, or a big k, depending on how you see it. That's your nonce commitment. You, scare quotes, hash it, to get a scalar r, and you do m plus r times x, and then instead of sending just m plus r times x, you multiply that by k. So then you have 1 over k times g, 
and then k times m plus the hash of 1 over k times g times x. And so then to verify all of this, well, what I do is I sort of hash the, the point you gave me, square quotes, and then I take the scalar you gave me on the right, I multiply it, and so if you did things correctly, the k and the 1 over k in inside the point cancel each other out, I get m plus r times x, and I can check this because I can do, I know what m is, so I can do hash of m, well, I can do m times g, that gives me one part of the thing when multiplied by g, and then the other thing is r times x times g, and I know that your public key should be x times g, so I can just do r, the hash, times the public key. Okay, hopefully that was not, like, terribly confusing. And anyhow, you can skip to this point in the episode in which I'll say why this is hard, and so there's two, two hard things here, which is, one, you need to invert k, so you need to do 1 over k, and this is hard if you're like in a group setting. I'll explain sort of how, what the group setting is later, but it's hard to invert k with multiple people. And it's also hard to multiply k and x with multiple people without revealing either of them to each other. And also, if you reveal k, this messes everything up and you learn x. Because if I reveal k, well, you know, the last part is k times m plus, you know, something times x. I divide out k, I get m, which I know. I subtract m, I get something I know, times x. Divide that out, I get x. So it's bad. So, inversion and multiplication are hard. And this is what makes uh, Threshold ECDSA such a fruitful field of study. So yeah, that's a, a recap of how ECDSA works. But I guess let's talk briefly about like the how you make this work in the Threshold setting, at least like, well, the starting point. So, in the Threshold setting, you need to share your secret somehow. And it doesn't really matter how you do this because sort of every scheme ends up in this situation when you're actually producing a signature, which is you have linear shares. So what I mean by this is you take your secret x and you end up with some values x1 to xn if there's n people that sum up to x. So x1 plus x2 plus dot 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 plus xn gives you x. And this is the sharing. And each person only knows one of these, you know, components, you know, xi, and they're not able to re reconstitute the entire secret x. And so when doing threshold signing, you want to sort of do this ECDSA protocol, generating the k, inverting it, multiplying it by g, etc, etc, scare quotes hashing it, without actually uh, revealing sort of the nonce or the secret. Because one thing you could do is sort of everybody sort of shares uh, their share, and then you learn the private key and then you sign. But then that sort of only works once, kind of like the dilemma we had earlier. So you want to be able to sign multiple times with the same key. So you want to somehow not reveal the shares during the signing process. And what's difficult is that, let's say I had to add two secrets, right? So I have A, which is shared as A1 plus A2, etc. B, which is shared as B1 plus B2, etc. If I do A plus B, well, if you sort of write this out, it's A1 plus A2, etc., etc., plus B1 plus B2, blah, blah, blah. But another way to write it is A1 plus B1 plus B2 plus A2. Well, A1 plus B1 plus A2 plus B2. It's the same as what I said earlier, but a bit clearer, perhaps. So basically, each component, AI, as with BI, and I can sort of group these in this way, and I still get the same result. Because it doesn't matter the order I add stuff together. And the neat thing is if I'm doing AI plus BI 
every time, well, each person can just sort of do that locally. So each person adds their shares of the two values together, and if the result you want to learn is the addition, well, you should just send that out. So addition works quite nicely because sort of the same operation as the sharing you have. Uh, multiplication like sort of messes this up. I guess I explained this in my threshold signature, like general overview. But the reason it messes it up is let's say you just have like two people. So I have A1 plus A2 times B1 plus B2. Well, if you multiply this out, you have A1 times B1. Okay. You have A2 plus B2. Nice. It also works out. But then you have the cross terms. You have A1 times B2 plus A2 times B1. And so these two cross terms are like tricky. And the reason they're, they're tricky is that, well, with the, with, with the cross terms, like you sort of need the cooperation of both people because you need to somehow get shares of A1, B2 plus B2, A1, which is tricky. And basically like the main complexity in threshold ECDSA is just doing the multiplication. So I talked about inversion being hard too, but actually, you can sort of just use the multiplication to do it. So here's why. So let's say I have, you know, our nonce. One way to generate the nonce is each person just generates a share. And then implicitly, you have a nonce because, like, if you added all the shares together, even if, like, there's no, like, communication at all for, for now, there's already, like, this implicit share. So each person generates this implicit, like, nonce K, rather. Because each person has their share of KI with the generated... Even if there's no communication, if you were to theoretically add them together, you'd have some nonce, right? So, that's, it's easy to establish a nonce. Using it is a bit more complicated, but it's easy to establish it, at least. But how do you invert it? Well, you can sort of cheat, and you just generate another nonce, let's say, delta. And the idea is, like, if I do... If I were to reveal k times delta, that wouldn't reveal any information about k. Just like you have this random delta blinding it completely. So let's say that I had like a trusted third party and they, you know, gave us k times delta. So they did the hard multiplication thingy. Well, then now what we can do to invert k is just we divide our shares of delta by k times delta. And so then what ends up happening is that if you were to divide delta by k times delta, we just get 1 over k because like the deltas cancel out. And if I do... If I have like some some shares, say delta one plus delta two, if each person does that share over over k times delta, well, this sort of multiplication sort of by public value sort of works nicely over the the linear shares. If I have a public value p and I do p times a one locally, and the other guy does p times a two locally, well, if we add these together, we get p p times a one plus p times a two, but that just p times parentheses a1 plus a2. So if you were to somehow learn k times delta, that wouldn't reveal any information about k, but then you could locally divide your shares of delta to get 1 over k. So if you can do multiplication, inversion becomes easy. And so usually you just say, okay, we're just going to you know multiply, and that makes inversion easy. So the difficulty in threshold ECDSA really boils down to how do you multiply linearly shared secrets? It's like this it's it's kind of like silly to say it out loud because it's 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 kind of simple at a face at, at like when you say it it's just so simple. How do I multiply two values?
Like sometimes cryptography is really like absurd. Like you, you spend like years, literally years, people, there's like papers over like five years and it's, and it's like, how, how do you multiply two numbers? <laughs> it's, it's really kind of comical if you think about it. So yes, how do you multiply two numbers? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's two like big approaches uh, at least like there, there's like a lot of sort of like lesser known papers in ECDSA which I won't talk about because mainly because I've forgotten about them. Uh, that, that's the reason I won't talk about them. But any, anyhow, the two big approaches, one bigger than the other, really, are homomorphic encryption and oblivious transfer. So those are the two big ones. So I guess we'll talk about homomorphic encryption quite a bit more because that's like the main popular one. I'll just go ahead and spoil it. It's the one I don't like. I don't like homomorphic encryption that much. I prefer, I think oblivious transfer is more aesthetically pleasing at least. Uh, but there's, I'll talk about sort of the disadvantages of both approaches, naturally. So I've, homomorphic encryption, that's sort of like a big word. Basically, it's, it's actually kind of simple given like the background we have now. So I talked about like, what's neat with this cryptographic group thing is that like, if I have, you know, two scalars, and I add them together, then I move to the group by multiplying by the generator. So a plus b times g, well, that's a times g plus b times g. So this is sort of homomorphic in the sense that, like, the mapping here respects the operation. So if I do, you know, this map times a plus b, that's equal to the map on a alone plus the map on g alone. So I can sort of add before or after the map, and it sort of gets me the same thing. So we say that the map is homomorphic with respect to addition because that's this operation that sort of floats between the two sides of the map. So it's a very nice property. The homomorphic encryption in this context just means we have an encryption scheme where we can add encryptions together. So I have an encryption of some value A and an encryption of some value B. I can add these two ciphertexts together to get an encryption of A plus B. And by add, I don't mean like literally adding the ciphertext, but like doing some complicated operation, potentially, because obviously you want to sort of have the encryption actually not reveal anything about the data contained inside. And why is this useful? Well, one way to look at the multiplication thingy is that if you want to multiply two linear shared secrets, it really comes down to get to the cross terms. So, you know, bring back up the mental sketch we had, we have a1 plus a2 on one side times b1 plus b2 on the other side. So you have a1 times b1, that's sort of the like term you can do yourself alone, because you have a1 and b1. The other guy can do a2 times b2 himself. That's fine too. The issue is the cross terms, a1 times b2 and b2 times a1. Yes. Well, actually, no, a1 times b2 and a2 times b1. Yes, I got that wrong. Anyhow, you have this, this look at run cross term, it's I have A, you have B, together these have, these give us A times B, and sort of one way to sort of resolve this conundrum is that if we had some kind of like magical protocol where if you have, if I have A, you have B, that multiply together to get some value, let's say C, if we could somehow like get out two additive shares, C1 plus C2, out of this magic protocol, then that would sort of be enough to multiply. Because what we would do is like we do this for the two cross terms, and now we each sort of have shares of the multiplication. Because I can do my a1 times b1, you're on my own, 
you can do the a2 times b2 on your own. And then for the cross terms, we run this magic protocol, we get additive shares of each of them. And so then we, you know, add those shares to our own terms we generated earlier. And so we end up with shares of the multiplication. That makes sense. So the homework encryption is useful for this like sub 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 protocol of signing called multiplicative to additive conversion. So I want to take my, you know, I want to go from A times B shared as one person having A and the other person having B. So that's sort of multiplicative sharing because we have some secret AB shared this way. And I want to go to a additive sharing, which is what is used for the rest of the stuff. So I want to go from A and B to alpha and beta such that alpha plus beta equals A times B. So I want to do this somehow. And homomorphic encryption is sort of useful because what I can do is like, I send you an encryption of A, and what you can do is like, you can add the ciphertext to itself to get two times A, right? And you can add it to itself again, you get three times A. And if you see where I'm going with this, at the very beginning of the episode, I explained how like, you can multiply a point by a scalar by adding it to itself n times. Well, if I have a number, multiplication is really just adding a number to itself n times, that's n times x, even if they're both numbers. So if I want to multiply this ciphertext by b, I can just add it to itself b times, and I can sort of do this more efficiently than the naive way, because I can sort of double it. Because like if I wanted to do like 8 times the thing, I double it to get, you know, 2 times my ciphertext, and I take this new ciphertext added to itself again, and this doubles to get me to 4, and then to 8, to 16, etc. So I can sort of get all of these, you know, powers of 2, and then I sort of add them together in the right way to get exactly the number I want, based on its representation as bits. So the idea is, I send you my encryption of A, you can multiply it locally by B, and you get a ciphertext containing AB. So that's kind of useful. And so basically, you could send it back to me, and I could decrypt it. But then I learn AB like entirely, which is bad. So what you do is you generate your share of the encryption beta, because like we're on your side, which is the B side, and you encrypt it under sort of this, you know, because the idea is like I send you an encryption, but only I can decrypt. So I have this sort of, uh, well, I guess here you could have like a, a homework encryption scheme, which is symmetric, where you need to key both. Actually, no, you need, you need a homework encryption scheme, which is asymmetric. Anybody can encrypt to a given public key, but you need the secret key to be able to decrypt. I have the public key, and I've sent you an encryption under my public key, which is sort of, I guess, somewhat ironic because anybody could have done that, but only I know A. So anyhow, back to the square one, I have this encryption scheme, public secret key. I send you encryption under my public key of A. You can multiply it by B using the homomorphic property to get an encryption of AB which I can decrypt, but you can't, so you don't know what's inside. You just, you know that presumably it's AB, but you don't know the exact value, which would be bad. And then you can also encrypt your shared beta, and then you can subtract this ciphertext from the other, and this gives you, since it's homomorphic again, and this gives you a ciphertext of AB minus beta. And then you send this back to me, and I can decrypt. And when I decrypt, I get AB minus beta. And if I add that to your share beta, well, that gives us AB. 
So now this is using homomorphic encryption, like at the basic idea, it's this convenient way to sort of convert these multiplicative shares into additive shares, because I can just sort of send you encryption of my ciphertext, you sort of prepare the stuff locally and generate your share additively, and then sort of I get the, the, the rest by decrypting. So this is very useful. And I guess talking sort of a little bit about the other basic approach is oblivious transfer. And you also do this kind of like division where you sort of look at this multiplicative to additive conversion as like the, the small, like difficult nugget you need to crack to like make everything else work. And oblivious transfer is actually kind of harder, harder to explain, but actually has in practice like less ramifications in terms of like actually making things work. So oblivious transfers is this very interesting cryptographic protocol, which is it's possible to like have never encountered it if you like even if you do a bit of cryptography like it's possible to not really know it exists but as soon as you get into like protocol stuff it it, it sort of pops up everywhere it's a very useful little primitive so what is oblivious transfer well the idea is let's say i have two messages m0 and m1 and you want to receive one of the messages so and so you have, say, a bit B, and you'd like to receive MB, so either M0 or M1, depending what B is. And the idea is that Oblivious Transfer lets me send you that message without learning which of the two messages I sent. And also, you don't learn the other message that you didn't request. Because it would be easy for me not to learn which message I sent by just sending both of them, and then you just say, okay, well... I wanted the one on the left, so I'm just going to use that one. But thanks for sending me both. Well, the problem is that you learned the other one, so we don't want that either. And also, if I learn which one you want, like if you say, oh, I want, you know, number one, then I send you number one. Well, you don't learn number zero, but then I learned which one you wanted. So that's bad, too. So you need this sort of little primitive, which lets you uh, figure out which of the two you want. I could do an entire episode about oblivious transfer, but basically you can efficiently do this. Uh, and you can even do this without even using like public key stuff eventually, because like the idea is you, in practice, what you do is you sort of set up this like correlation, this special correlation between two people, and they can like generate a bunch of oblivious transfers very fast by like doing sort of like pseudo random generation from there. Uh, that's called extended oblivious transfer. But that's, you know, for another episode. But how you might ask, is this useful for multiplication? Like, what, is it, what does it have to do with multiplication? You're doing this, like, weird, you know, two messages, I send you one of the messages, what does it have to do? Okay. So let's say, like, this is kind of silly, let's say you wanted to multiply uh, my number by a bit. Right? So then, it's like, this is a bit silly, because it's basically, I either, I either send you the message or I don't. So that, that, that's kind of, that's sort of a bit... A bit silly, but you know, bear with me. So, I have. Well, you want to learn a times my secret a times your bit b. Well, with oblivious transfer, you could do this. So, my message for zero is zero because a times zero is zero, and my message for one is a because a times one is a. And then we do oblivious transfer. I don't know what your bit b is, and you learn either. 8 times 0 or 8 times 1, depending on what your choice is. Now, for now, from my perspective as a sender, this, this is kind of, this kind of sucks because, like, I lose privacy, and you sort of learn the multiplication. 
So that's that's kind of bad, but we'll sort of fix that in a bit. So how do you multiply by like an entire like number? So here you're multiplying by just one bit. It turns out that like one bit is sort of enough because uh, you can just sort of decompose a number into binary. So like, let's say a number has two bits. Well, I can write it as like two times one bit plus one times another bit, or maybe it has three bits. So it's like four times one bit plus two times one bit plus one times one bit. <laughs> so three different bits. So if you sort of run this protocol three times, well, I learn a times b one and a times b zero. So I can then do two times a b one plus one times a b zero. And that gives me a times b if I decompose it into into bits. So like all I need to do is like a, a this sort of protocol for just one bit because then I can sort of just sum them together with powers of two to get the actual thingy. And so this works for actually just multiplying a times b. The issue is that like the receiver here learns a times b entirely, which is bad. So what you want instead is like one way to sort of make the shares work is that I generate like a an alpha, which is my share of a times b. And instead of you learning a times b directly, you you learn like a times b minus alpha. If that makes sense. Like, if you were to learn a times b minus alpha directly, and I were to learn nothing as the sender, well, that would be great, because then, like, I have alpha, you have a, b minus alpha. Great, that's our, our shares of a, b. So the idea is, like, well, let's say b is just one bit, you know, once again. Well, one way to do this is, like, one message is, well, minus alpha, and the other message is uh, a minus alpha. And so then this would let you do the one-bit multiplication just fine. And then for multiple bits it's like the same idea and so like i do you know we do one instance we have minus alpha a minus alpha and we sort of repeat this again you know maybe n times if you have n bits and then you sort of do this multiplication yourself where well we run this protocol for oblivious transfer and then you can sort of sum things up on your end with the powers of two and it sort of works out the issue is that like you don't want to reuse alpha because like Let's say let's say I reuse alpha and like you know that like the first two bits are zero, then you sort of learned like alpha. Well, let's say like you <laughs> you you use a zero bit once, right? Then you know alpha and you can sort of like subtract it like for the other bits and learn like bits of a. And that's not great. So instead, I have one alpha for each of these like in bits. And so if each of the alphas is different, that's fine. And then also like when you do your reconstruction. Like you're doing basically a sum of the outputs you got times a power of two. Well, that means that like whatever share you end up with, because of like you're doing like sum of like, because basically at each instance you've gotten my a times your bit i, so a times bi plus alpha i, or minus alpha i, depending on how you write it. And so then when you do this sum, well, the extra factor on your end is going to be a sum over the alpha i's times the power of two. So basically, I just need to like set that as my share too, so that we end up with like correct shares. But the basic idea, the essence of it is that like you do one oblivious transfer for each bit of your scalar, and you choose a random sort of nonce for each of these instances, and this allows each person to sort of reconstitute their share by doing a sum with powers of two. 
to do actual multiplication instead of this weird product thingy. But the basic idea is like, you do a lot of oblivious transfers to make this work. And at, at like, at the basic level where you just sort of assume people are honest, you need at least one oblivious transfer per bit. And so already like with the homomorphic encryption thingy, you just need like one encryption, sort of. You do one encryption, uh, the other guy does one encryption and does like a few additions of, of, of ciphertext. It's like not that bad. It's like one sort of multiplication of ciphertext and one addition. So it's okay. And like the scaling of the ciphertext is sort of like n additions. Whereas here you need to do n oblivious transfers, which I guess, I mean, it, it, compared to n additions of ciphertext, it may not be that bad. So like, you have, well, the major difference you can already see at this stage is like with encryption, there's like not much communication. I just send one ciphertext. You may have to do a lot of computation for like the end additions of ciphertext to like scale it up, but that's like a local. There's nothing to communicate. And often in these protocols, that can be an issue. And for oblivious transfer, you do have to communicate a lot because with each oblivious transfer, you have to like send some messages. And so you have to send like, do some stuff and send some messages. The computation may be light, but you do have to send some messages for each bit which is like worse in communication compared to like the homomorphic encryption idea. And often protocols, as I said, like communication can become the bottleneck because if you have like people connected over a large like network, like sending the messages might become more expensive than actually doing the computation locally. And often like depending on how the protocol is structured, you can sort of like do computation in parallel while you're waiting for messages. So often the conversation sort of becomes free in some sense because so even now, you can sort of see the the big sort of differences between the two. So like OT may have like less computational co complexity, but it has more co communication complexity. So there's kind of this fundamental trade-off. Homomorphic encryption is less sort of, is more bandwidth efficient, but less computation efficient. Whereas oblivious transfer is less bandwidth efficient, but more computation efficient because it's simpler operations. And I've mentioned, I think once that this is the, you know, honest case. So like assuming that people are following the protocol so far. So the real difficulty here is like, how do you handle people deviating from the protocol? And so I guess I'll, I'll sort of get to each of these uh, in their own time, starting with uh, homomorphic encryption. First of all, like how you, I mean, I guess the basic idea for both is that there, there's sort of two things you can do. So one of these applies more to oblivious transfer than the other. So one thing you can do is like, you sort of, there's two ways something can go wrong. So something can go wrong to the point that like, you learn secrets you're not supposed to, and that's really bad. And then something can go wrong in the sense that you just get the wrong result. So like maybe instead of shares of AB, we get shares that are random and you don't know like the other share, but of something different. And so that's like an easier, a better problem to have in some sense. Because, like, if you have the wrong result, you can sort of, like, check that you ended up with the right result somewhat easily. Uh, if you learn secrets, well, that's, you know, it's finito. It's, you're, you're sort of done at that point. Because, like, secrets have leaked. It's over. Tough luck. No cigar. But if you get the wrong result, you can sort of, like, detect it. <laughs> you can, like, uh, you can use these fancy group stuffs to make sure that you got, like, an actual multiplication, right? Because since everything is sort of behind a group element, you can say, oh, you know, if I, is, is the thing actually, you know, supposed to be uh, the, the thing it's supposed to be? And there are sort of two strategies 
to prevent bad things from happening. So with Oblivious Transfer, you can sort of encapsulate a lot of the malicious complexity there. So you can sort of design protocols for like doing the multiplication. I described a basic one called the Joboa or Joboa protocol. Uh, but you can you can design protocols for multiplication or like even if people deviate, like as long as the Oblivious Transfer is like secure and doesn't like can't have leak information even with malicious participants, like the worst you can do is just this incorrect but noisy thing. So the idea is like you add extra padding when doing the oblivious transfer and that gives you sort of extra entropy so that even if I mess around with the multiplication thingy, I still get a result for the other guy which I don't know enough about. And so from there, you can sort of figure out that like you got the right result because it's noisy. With uh, homomorphic encryption, you sort of need to proactively check that people aren't doing shenanigans. And a good way of proactively checking this is you just make everybody sort of prove in zero knowledge that they're not messing around. And I guess I sort of explain like <laughs> the Oblivious Transfer approach. It's really, it really is that simple. It's just sort of like you do noisy but possibly incorrect. And then from there, you can sort of do simple checks and you don't need like zero knowledge. You don't need like zero knowledge proofs over Oblivious Transfer, like stuff like that. Uh, so it's relatively simple from there on. For homomorphic encryption, like first of all, getting it to work is sort of a bit complicated. And more complicated than Oblivious Transfer, and also like you have to be more proactive uh, in sort of how you keep security. So uh, first of all, uh, with Oblivious Transfer, I guess I haven't explained like how you implement it, but you can sort of take my word that you can just implement it using your group, which you need for ECDSA anyways. So you can use that group to do Oblivious Transfer stuff. So that's very convenient because you don't need extra like primitives. With homework encryption, unfortunately, you sort of do. I guess in theory, no, you do. Well, you, you really kind of do. So like one, one approach that you could do in theory, which I haven't seen papers do, is that like you could use what's, what's called Elgamal encryption. So Elgamal encryption is like a way to like do homomorphic encryption over group elements, if you look at it strictly speaking. And the issue is like you want homomorphic encryption over scalars and not group elements. So like when, when we, this could work is like you could do it for like small scalars because then you could have like a lookup table for like small scalars to group elements because in principle you can't reverse the mapping. But if you had like, you know, just one bit well you could reverse the mapping, right? Or maybe two bits that's only like a lookup table with four elements. Four bits is like only 16 elements so you can reverse that. But anything bigger it starts to become intractable. So then like you split up the scalar into small pieces and then you do homomorphic encryption this way. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I've seen protocols do that. It might be interesting to see like how this compares because usually instead you use an approach where like the ciphertexts are big enough that they're like much larger than the scalar, so you can sort of do addition and multiplication easily. Here to do multiplication, like you need you need basically a lot of ciphertexts if you want to keep things like manageable. So it's it's sort of tricky. And so like the most common approach in papers has been what's called Paillet encryption. So Paillet is like sort of a variant of RSA. I say, I say sort of in like a very vague sense. It's based also on factorization, and if you squint very hard, high encryption does look like RSA. But it gives you uh, homomorphic properties over the integers, basically. And one interesting thing with like high and RSA is that you don't know the order of like the group you're sort of using, because like if you did, you could factor the the number, which is like part of the secret. So. That's not great. 
well, factoring the number is not, not great. It should be hard. But you sort of get homomorphic encryption over integers, and you make sure that, like, you have enough space to fit in scalars and a multiplication. So that's one approach. Another approach, which I haven't seen actually used uh, in threshold ECDSA papers, which would work, is you use lattices for homomorphic encryption instead. And you don't even need, like, fully homomorphic encryption, you just need, like, it's often referred to as somewhat homomorphic encryption, which is, like, a bit misleading, but it's... It also referred to, like, you can do a, a, bit, a bit of multiplication, but not too much. But here you just need addition. Uh, and enough space. So you could also use lattices, which, which would probably be faster than pi A. Uh, the issue... Well, first of all, let's talk a bit about speed. So, pi A is, like, kind of slow. It's sort of like RSA in some sense. So it's actually slower, a lot slower than elliptic curve operations. Which is sort of an issue, uh, especially. Well, I'm sort of getting ahead of myself, but basically, like pi a would be a lot slower than just lattice encryption, just taking on face value. And one thing that makes like pi a slow in practice is that, for malicious security, like as I mentioned, you need to add. You you can't really get this sort of noisy but incorrect paradigm with with homomorphic encryption. You have to have this proactive security paradigm where, like, you prove in zero knowledge that everything you're doing is correct to prevent someone from, like, leaking values by, like, well, preventing leaks by someone sending sort of malicious ciphertexts that would be bad. So, and sort of like, because, like, one idea is, like, I sort of send a ciphertext that's, like, all that may or may not overflow based on what the value you have is that you're multiplying with. And so then I could sort of learn bits of your value that way. So that's sort of bad. And so, like, you add these zero-knowledge proofs, which check that, like, oh, you know, my ciphertext is actually the encryption of a scalar, which is, like, in this range. And then, like, you do other stuff, like, oh, I actually encrypted the right thing in the ciphertext, and it's not, like, complete random junk. And, oh, actually, I generated my PIE modulus correctly. <laughs> like, you have, like, a, a billion different zero-knowledge proofs in these protocols. Uh, so, yeah. And every every one of these zero knowledge proofs, like they basically have to do operate more and more operations over this IA, you know, stuff. And like each of these operations is like more costly than group operations with your elliptic curve. And you're doing a lot and a lot of these operations for all of these proofs. And one issue here, if you try to translate this into lattices naively, is that there's not necessarily analogs of the zero knowledge proofs in the lattice setting. I I mean this is like reaching the sort of limits of my knowledge here when it comes to like zero knowledge proofs on lattices but my understanding is that like there are like it's it's less developed in terms of like especially because what you need to do is like you need sometimes you need zero knowledge proofs which connect the paille world to like the group world like i need to prove like oh this ciphertext in the paille land is connected to this like group element somehow like it's the same scalar in both something like that and like doing this with lattices is like trickier. It's, it's probably not like fundamentally harder, so I, I expect maybe in the future people are going to use uh, lattices for threshold EC, ECDSA, but, you know, for now, like, people haven't done it for some reason. And I, I guess going into the nitty-gritty of each paper is probably not too enlightening. The basic idea, historically, and I'm not like a good historian on this, is like, you had this Lendo paper which did sort of this idea in the two-party case, and then it was sort of extended with the GG line of papers, to the multi-party case, and then sort of the culmination of that idea is the CGGMP paper, which is, I think, came out last year. And that sort of has, like, 
after various sort of attacks, people realize that you need extra proofs for this and that. And so, like, the CGGMP approach is that you just, you just like, prove absolutely everything under the sun. Uh, you prove that, like, you generated your modulus. There, there are proofs in that paper which I don't understand the purpose of. Perhaps for, like, perhaps you need them for, like, UC security, which is, like, another topic. So, like, like one, one of the proofs which I found interesting is that you prove that, like, because, like, pi is, like, RSA, and that you have, like, two primes, and you multiply them together to get a modulus. So you prove that, like, the primes that you use don't suck. Like, they're equally sized. And I, f I felt like it only hurts you if the primes are bad. And also, like, there are some, like, bits of paranoia, which I'm still, even after, like, having sort of interacted with this paper, like, over the course of a year, on and off, I'm still not sure, like, what the purpose of some things are. For example, they, they ask for safe primes. So a safe prime is like one where it's a it's a prime p where p minus one over two is also prime. So basically, one sort of issue is that if you're doing kind of like exponentiation in a in a group, or if if you basically like if you're doing like sort of exponentiation modulo prime, you sort of run into this issue where like the security of the group may depend on like the factorization of p minus one, and so if p minus one over two is prime. That's sort of like that's the but the strongest prime you can get in some sense for the, these kinds of operations, and the relevance of this to pi encryption is something I still don't actually understand. Uh, for example, for RSA, you don't need to generate safe primes apparently, and pi is kind of similar. But in the paper, they say to generate safe primes, and generating a safe prime is like so substantially slower than generating a normal prime. So <laughs> I actually spent like I think I probably spent like at least a week in total effort on like just speeding up the generation of safe primes. I had to deploy a lot of techniques when I was working on implementing the CGGMP paper. So like, first of all, you have to like do like different sievings approach because if you just like trying to, because like one naive approach, I mean, the basic approach to generating a safe prime is you just generate a prime and then you check that it's safe. And if not, you retry, but you sort of want to mix like the normal prime sieving procedure with your safe prime checking to like avoid false positives. Like you, you want to sort of avoid the primes which have no chance of being safe, like much earlier than you would normally. And then also, like, we implemented a system to parallelize the generate the sieving, <laughs> so to use multiple cores to, to search for primes. Anyhow, it can take like several seconds to generate a safe prime that's big enough, and you need to generate like four of these. I think it's like either two or four, but yeah, this is me like complaining at this point, but. And also, like, they use, like, Peterson commitments over Paye and, and stuff. And, yeah. So, anyhow, that's, like, a, a lineage of papers, which I'll, I'll link in the show notes. Then also, with regards to, like, Threshold DCDSA, like, uh, these papers also, I guess, I don't know when they started trying to do identifiable aborts, but by the time they got to CGGMP, this became, like, an important aspect of the paper. And I think I've talked about identifiable aborts before in the podcast. But yeah, this is also something that I'm, I'm kind of skeptical of. Uh, I've, I've talked about it a few times and tweeted about it a few times, but basically the idea is uh, you want to... It, with, with enough malicious participants, you can't guarantee that the protocol is going to terminate. It might be possible to cause the protocol to abort. For example, with all these you know proofs, you could just like send a bad proof and then like you have to abort because like you, you shouldn't you shouldn't continue at that point and so do you, anybody can cause an abort 
But with a proof, the sort of advantage is that like if like I send you a signed message with my proof and it's bad, that sort of gives you evidence to sort of demonstrate that I actually behave badly. And the idea is like maybe you can abort, but anytime you abort, there's like proof that somebody acted badly. So this is the notion of identifiable aborts. And I've talked a lot about this, and I think that in practice, like when you consider like the actual the actual implementation of a protocol and like all the things that happen, it's very difficult to actually achieve. And I'm, I'm sort of especially skeptical of trying to sort of do automatic slashing and stuff based on identifiable aborts. But anyhow, this is another thing you can optimize for. And when you do identifiable aborts, it kind of shifts your perspective because you need a lot more proactive security because the sort of noisy but correct approach doesn't work too well because like you shouldn't need to check everything individually. Because with the noisy but correct approach, one thing you can do is like, you sort of aggregate everything and then just check that globally everything is correct. But if you check that globally everything is correct, you might like lose information about who caused it to be incorrect. Whereas with, with if each person proves their output, like you know at each step that each person did things correctly. So it's easier to attribute blame because like you're, you know that, oh, you know, this proof is bad, so this person cheated. Versus if I just check that, oh, did we get the correct result? Like, this is the signature verify. Well, yes or no, but I don't know, like, who caused the signature to be bad. So that's, that's sort of a, you need to do a lot more work to do identifiable boards. And often, like, the, the way it's done is, like, you sort of, so you can also, like, have this optimization where, like, you do more work in the happy path to make identifiable boards easier. So like maybe I do an aggregate check, but then that means that I have to do more detective work to figure out who caused the failure, <laughs> you know? Like maybe I do this like protocol where I do these global checks, but people send me proofs of individual stuff which I didn't check. And then only if the global check fails, then I do the individual checks of each proof. And so then like you need to write this like detective work protocol <laughs> to like figure out who done it when you're actually getting aboard. And often like, if you were to implement this in practice, like, you're never going to test the whodunit code, and so then it's probably going to fail in practice because, like, it's never running. So, like, anytime, anytime you have code that's never running to check something, that's 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 generally going to be a, an interesting thing for security because, like, it only gets checked when someone tries to hack your system. And if, if code hasn't been, like, exercised very often, there's most likely going to be bugs in it. But really, I, I didn't want to talk about identifiable boards this much, but it's hard to, to refrain, you know? And then for the oblivious transfer approaches, like well, there's like I guess one paper really, and that's the Derner paper. I guess they they published a second one which I haven't like, which I haven't sort of investigated fully. But the idea with Derner is that like you sort of do the oblivious transfer approach in like the the you know straightforward way, and then they had this sort of paper for two parties, which is I implemented as well, and then they had this sort of paper extending it to the multi-party case, and so that's just sort of like asking the question, like, what if we did oblivious transfers instead of uh, threshold, instead of homomorphic encryption, like, what would it look like? But otherwise, like, the flow of the protocol is essentially sort of the same, just, like, less zero-knowledge proofs for stuff. And then, I think I explained, like, oblivious transfer and, like, how it works enough to not dwell too long on Derner because it's, it's, it's really just a straightforward application of that. Like, if you, read, if you read the paper, it's, like, mainly just explaining the uh, oblivious transfer. Like, the actual protocol stuff is quite, like, maybe a page or two in this paper. And then there's like the one quite interesting approach, which is like you just use like generic MPC. So there are MPC protocols for like arbitrary programs, and you could use one of these. 
And there's this interesting paper where I'll link in the show notes where they sort of do this approach where they use a general MPC protocol. But obviously, if you were to do elliptic curve operations like directly, that'd be like super slow. So instead, they sort of like adapt this protocol so that like you can use the fact that you know multiplying by the generator is sort of homomorphic to like do operations using your sort of MPC framework, but with like you know not super slow operations over elliptic curves. And what's interesting with this paper is like it's it's one of the examples of cryptography papers with contrived, like <laughs> that have to have contrived examples for some reason. So it, it's this interesting paper about threshold ECDSA, ECDSA, but like the premise is securing DNSSEC, which is like it's 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 like this sort of tacked on example. Uh, I think I think it, this is like a, a side effect of academic publishing, but it's always funny to see that in a paper. Uh, my graphs about this paper are that like it's not it's not like super clear what the protocol is like it's it you need like a lot of background context on like the the spuds framework they're building on to understand what's going on in the paper and then even then like if you were to write down the protocol it would probably look very very different from what's in the paper and like it's always good to have like a nice that's that's a, i guess a compliment to the cg gmp paper is that like they do actually write down at some point like the protocol in full and you can like follow it and like say, okay, you know, this code does implement the protocol because it's like doing the same stuff. Uh, there are some parts which are left vague, but that's like a general thing with cryptographic protocols is that they're often somewhat vague in papers, which is, I mean, admittedly, that's kind of normal because like you want to focus on the security proof and the math and the paper. And there are a lot of details which are non-essential to the math and like sort of common knowledge like, you don't want to, like, to specify the exact byte encoding of, like, messages and stuff. That's just, like, a waste of, of space in the paper. And it's, like, something you probably don't even want to decide at the math level. But it is important to, like, figure out how you're going to encode messages and, like, how do I make sure that, like, when I'm processing messages, they're processed for the right round and whatnot. You could do a whole episode just about, like, how do you implement protocols in practice? There's a lot of fun little details about that. Like, what do you include in the Fiat Shamir transform? I did another podcast about that one. And the answer is everything, of course. So, what's interesting with, like, the, the generic MPC approach is that it, it, it sort of isolates a lot of the complexity of multiplication into, like, whatever MPC framework you use. Like, one idea I got from that paper is that you can sort of use what's called beaver triples. And basically with beaver triples is, like, I multiplied like two random values before, and I use the fact that these values are now sort of like correlated because we have shares of the values themselves and the multiplication. And I sort of sacrifice this randomness to do a multiplication of values I care about. And the idea is like all of the complexity and the multiplication stuff is done to this you know phase I did before, which is random values. And then the protocol you do when you actually have the you know message you want to sign is much simpler. And what's neat with doing this is that, like, you can sort of prepare your multiplication triples in whatever way you want. So if you look at, like, the securing DNS, like, paper, they, like, use this SPUDS framework, and in SPUDS, you need a way to generate triples. But, like, how you generate triples, like, you can use the homomorphic encryption approach, you can use the oblivious transfer approach, you can use whatever. You can even use, like, a trusted dealer if you wanted to do that. So you just trust some person to generate the triples. And what's interesting is that you... As I said, you isolate all of the complexity and all of like the hard choices and threshold ECDSA, you isolate to this triple generation phase. 
And so then like you can just like get that triple generation phase right. It can be like slow, you don't really care because you do it, you know, advance. And then when it comes to actually signing a message, well, you just you know, get a triple, you burn it, you use it in the protocol in an easy way, and then like you're done. And so what makes like threshold ECDSA kind of slow is like the fact that you're doing and like complicated is like you're doing all this complicated like multiplication stuff. And often, well, that's often like just slow computationally and also maybe communication if you're doing oblivious transfer, but also like often you're, you're mingling like the multiplication logic with like the logic of actually like doing a signature. Because like you have parts of the protocol which are then dedicated to like getting stuff in the right shape for the signature. So like the K delta thing where like you want to divide by K delta, like often you end up mixing this detail with like other details of like multiplying two values together and it makes the protocol like harder to analyze because stuff is like less modular. But with a triple approach, what's neat, and what I, what I really like in reading the DNSSEC paper is that you sort of move the triple approach outside, all of the complexity and multiplication is there, and it's also like configurable, because like you, you could ch easily chain move from PIA to oblivious transfer if you preferred, or even back, or just lose, use lattices, and it wouldn't change the rest of the protocol because it just depends on triples. You know, how you generate those, you don't really care. You just need to be generated somehow. And so you isolate this multiplication stuff. And uh, I guess I've been going on for like over an hour, so I should start to wrap things up. So I guess a little blurb on what I'm working on. So I'm working on a, on a new threshold ECDSA protocol myself uh, after like thinking about it on and off for a while. And the idea is sort of to use triples. Um, but instead of like using all of the SPUDS framework, which has like not to explain spuds for a while, but basically they have this approach to checking validity, which is like the, you have this sort of secret key, which acts as kind of like a Mac, like a, a and you do like this verification check at the very end of the protocol after running everything. Uh, it, in my approach, I'm leaning more heavily on the fact that you're in a group. And so like, I check that values are correct using the fact that, well, you know what they should be based on like group elements. So like, if I know, if I have like values A and B, and I know that it, like shared together, and I know that like if I add all the shares together and multiply them by the generator, I get a public value A. And if I do the same for the Bs, I get a public value B. Then if each person adds them locally and then broadcast the result, well, I can check that this is correct after adding everybody's you know answer together by just doing okay, is this value I got times G equal to A plus B? <laughs> and so for like using Bieber triples, essentially it works like this. Like you just do like the triple sacrifice thing to multiply numbers together. And then you ask yourself, oh, is this the correct result? Well, you know, if I multiply by the generator and then check the equation it needs to satisfy over the group elements, which I have for, you know, the secret values, you know, do I get the right result? Yes or no. And so it's, you know, quite a simple approach to doing the protocol. And I'm sort of like in, I'm not in stealth mode since I've talked about it a few times, but I'm at the point where I don't like proactively share the code a lot because it's not done. Like I've written the spec for like two parts of the protocol, key generation and signing, but I still need to write the spec for uh, generating triples, which I figured out, like I figured out how I'm going to do it and wrote down the protocol on paper. I need to like actually write it down like, you know, as a spec. And then I'm going to implement it, sort of implementing it. And then hopefully the benchmarks are going to look good. I don't know about that yet. Sort of a, Align to the blue, and hopefully the benchmarks look good, and I'll be happy. And then I can write a proof of security, and then probably change the protocol to make the proof of security work. And then benchmark it again. Hopefully, it's not too bad. Uh, so anyhow, I've been working on it. It's called Kate Seth. Uh, it's an acronym. If you can guess the acronym, 
congratulations. Uh, eventually, I'll, I'll, when, I, when I finish it, I'll, I'll actually tell, tell people what the acronym stands for. It's kind of a joke. But anyhow, I, this is, has been like almost two... Wait, no. Two hours would be... Well, two, uh, 120 minutes. I got confused because it's, it's an hour and 20, which is like one, one tw Anyhow, at this point, I, I'm, I'm getting very rambly. So I think I'll cut it off. Hopefully this was an interesting episode on Threshold DCSA. I talked a lot about just elliptic curve math. I think podcasting is perhaps the wrong format for doing that, but, you know, maybe people... Hopefully it was understandable nonetheless, and hopefully for people who already know what ECDSA was, the rest of the podcast about my, you know, opinions on Threshold DC DSA stuff was interesting. <laughs> uh, if you have... Uh, any feedback i'm always welcome to that of course but, you know awaiting scathing criticism <laughs> of my rambling uh, i wish you a good day and until the next episode thanks for listening bye bye